Hello, and thank you for joining us again for the Sunday Long Read Podcast. This week, it was a thrill to speak with Michael Cruz, a senior staff writer at Politico and one of the best composers of stories in journalism today. Michael described for us how he moved from covering rural news in New York's Hudson Valley all the way to writing about national politics for Politico, and what he did to find a niche once he found himself in Washington's ultra-competitive news culture. He also explained how he finds stories worth diving into and how, maybe, writing about a bighorn sheep has helped him cover President Trump. We also talked about reporting from so-called Trump country and what a political writer's aims ought to be these days. There's a lot more, too, like how a long-form Washington writer watches the State of the Union. We actually get to that first. Let's go there now. Enjoy. Michael, how are you doing today? I am doing well. How are you, Jacob? I'm excellent. Thank you so much for recording this uh, on, on Wednesday midday here, so... Uh, a little over 12 hours after the State of the Union, and I'm curious for you, as someone who covers politics but not necessarily the day-to-day aspect, how are you, what are you looking for in the State of the Union? How are you watching that event? I'm watching it with a jelly jar of red wine, and I'm <laughs> looking for um, I'm looking for any sort of kernels of potentially larger stories that might f- float across, might come out of his mouth, uh, might pop up in the coverage. I'm not looking at an event like that, you know, in any direct way to cover it for later that night on politico.com i uh, i'm i'm looking at the city of the union the way i look at lots of lots of politics which is to say um looking for um little ways in and pieces of stories that i can uh use to pitch something or use in something larger down the road do you wish sometimes you had the platform to to speak on that night and and, and react to what people are saying or are you glad to be someone who can sit back and watch things happen and, and dive in later on to something specific that jumped out to you? <laughs> the latter. I, I don't often have um, uh, any any particular desire to you know have a a, a quick take um, off a, an event. I am very very aware of the news cycle and of news cycles more than I was certainly earlier in my career before I went to Politico. At the same time, I, in my position, I think need to be able to kind of anticipate news cycles and uh, think about what might be operative, what people might want to read a few days from now, um, Mm -hmm. a few weeks from now, in certain cases, a few months from now, the ability to sort of you know, see around the corner a little bit and anticipate the news cycle is, I think, important for us at Politico magazine uh, more so than even the main site. Certainly, it's it's a tough it's a tough trick, and it mm-hmm. it, it it entailed um, a, I would say looking back a fairly steep learning curve when I first got to Politico for both me and and my editor. That's perfect. I wanted I want to dive into that transition and, and your opinion on the state of political journalism, but I think it's probably best at this point to to jump back if we can. Uh, I mean, what what do you consider your your storyteller beginnings? When did you first feel that? Uh, desire to, to tell stories, to write stories? Where did that come from for you and, and, and how did it develop? I would say it really started to gel in New York State where I worked at a newspaper called the Times-Herald Record. Uh, about an hour outside of the city, uh, based in Orange County, sort of headed up into the Catskills and over toward Pennsylvania, um, a, kind of a broad Hudson Valley coverage area. And yeah. I totally lucked out because I only started there because 
the place I had been working before that, Basketball America, a kind of small, nominally national publication based in North Carolina, went out of business. So I needed a job and, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, you know, cold resumes, uh, cold calls, and somehow I ended up at this newspaper. But in, in, in retrospect, it was an incredibly lucky break because the editor of the paper at that time, uh, who since died, unfortunately, was named Mike Levine, who... Uh, had been working at ESPN the magazine, but came back to the Times World Record because he felt this calling for not only community journalism, but uh, narrative. And that was not really a, a a word that was even on my radar screen at the time, which is, you know, we're talking 2003. Mm-hmm. And Narrative, tell a story, you know, don't, don't write me a report, tell me a story, uh, don't go to the, the town meeting to cover in a nuts and bolts way sort of what, um, what they did off the agenda, locate characters and tell me stories about these people and about the place uh, where these people live. And that was the first time somebody had really uh, framed it that way for me. And I think that was you know, inside of me, that was mm-hmm. the, sort of how I wanted to approach it. That was how I sort of instinctually approached uh, my work as a reporter. But Mike Levine and um, other people who were there, Terry Egan, uh, one of his deputies, um, who was from that area and came with him from ESPN, the magazine, uh, certainly was a part of this. They helped me um even have the vocabulary <laughs> to try to approach this work in that kind of way. And then additionally, um, some of the people who were there at that time um, were instrumental in in that early stage of my development in retrospect, probably certainly number one on that list is, is Ben Montgomery, who is uh, still my best friend um, and uh, kind of a partner in crime. We worked there at that paper together accidentally, and then we both went to Florida um, at the same time and um, just competed with each other, but in a friendly way, in a constructive way, and um, uh, have been, you know, to some extent, uh, trying to outright each other ever since. And so... <laughs> Uh, the Times Herald record for me was this kind of um, unexpected but unbelievably fortuitous um, incubator and launching pad. And how long did you spend there? Uh, two years and change, and uh-huh. then and then went from there to the St. Pete Times uh, because I had identified the St. Pete Times as as many uh, young journalists had and have. As yeah, a place absolutely. I wanted to be, uh, because they seemed to be pound for pound doing the kind of work I wanted to do, and was trying to do, and wanted to learn how to do better. They were doing that uh, more than any other place, pound for pound. Um, the the staff that that had been there, um, you know, from Rick Bragg to David Finkel to David Barstow to Ann Hall, Jeffrey Gettleman, uh, on and on, uh, to the staff that was still there at the time, um, Tom French, uh, Lane DeGregory, Kelly Benham. I mean, all these people are people that I was reading furiously while at the Times Herald Record, trying to learn from them and from their work. And then I wanted to, I wanted to work uh, in the same space and and learn from them and uh, resolve to get. To get myself to the St. Pete Times, which which happened in the middle of 2005. Gotcha. Yeah, and we, we had uh, Chris Gofford on the podcast uh, in the fall, 
uh, also kind of came out of that system, wrote, wrote Dirty John for the LA Times. and Definitely. You know, so, so when you get there, did you have uh, a specific beat or, or were you at that point already kind of a general features writer? No, no. I had a specific beat. I covered courts and I covered business uh, and I did it in a faraway bureau in Hernando County, Florida, which is about, um, uh, depending on where you are in the county, an hour uh, to an hour and a half away from Uh north of Tampa. Yeah, depending on how fast you drive up the uh, Suncoast Parkway. Um, Yeah, so I worked in a bureau and covered uh, courts, which was um, great, great training. Um, Wouldn't trade that experience for anything. Uh, covering the business beat in a bureau means you know, getting out and meeting uh, all kinds of people in that community um, through that context, which, which helped me um, branch out and start doing other things as well out of that county for you know, the sections that weren't my section, my local section, uh, tried very consciously to um, be with, with some frequency in uh, what was then a daily Floridian section, the feature section there. Um, tried very consciously to get my name on 1A um, with enough regularity that the people downtown would <laughs> would know my name and would and yeah. would not forget that I was up there. And um, but I mean, shoot, uh, even even working out in the in the bureau uh, in Hernando County, and then I actually worked in another bureau in Pasco County. Um, you know, I would go down uh, to Tampa and to St. Pete and uh, just uh, you know pick the brains of all these people who were there, and 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 uh, certainly some of them are still there, and just um, you know just be voracious about trying to learn from them because, um, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to sit in their seats basically <laughs> and, um, and was working toward that. What, what was it that got you, uh, the features title? Was it a specific story? Was it someone leaving? Let me, let me think back. Um, I was, like I said, trying to put my name and put my work into the Floridian section to the extent that it was possible working in Hernando County and working in Pasco. Um, and then, in addition to Floridian, Mike Wilson, who at the time was an editor at Floridian, uh, eventually became the managing editor there and is now the top editor at the Dallas Morning News, he spearheaded the creation of the so-called Enterprise Team, which created some more jobs, really, really good jobs um, of that ilk and I applied for one of them and uh, and got it and uh, moved down to St. Pete and and worked actually not directly for Mike but worked for Bill Durier. That's when I started working for Bill. Uh, he was another editor on the Enterprise team. There were three of them. There were six reporters and three editors at the time wow. on the Enterprise team. And uh, I worked with Bill because I had worked uh, with him on some other stories that I worked on when I still was out in the bureaus. That's something that the Times tried to do, I think still does. Um, you know, people out in the bureaus, up and comers who have stories that belong on the front or belong in Floridian, uh, sort of rope in um, some of the, the big gun editors from Tampa or St. Pete uh, to shepherd that work. And so I had done that a few times with, with, with Bill. Uh, and, that, and then I started working formally uh, for him there in what was probably 09. Uh, and, and I still um, 
you know, one of the great things about and, and, and most lucky things about my career to this point is that I still work for Bill. We went to Politico together. And so I've, I now have worked uh, with, with Bill Durier as my editor for going on a decade, which is, I think, you know, unbelievably fortunate and unusual. Yeah, that, that's obviously hugely lucky when you can maintain that relationship. And, and when you were starting to write uh, those more feature type stories in Tampa, uh, I want to get into the craft of it a little bit, and I think uh, one, one of the things I'm, I'm most impressed by is w- when you're identifying an article that has the capability of becoming a fuller, richer story. What, what do you look for, or you know, when a story, when an article is assigned to you and says you know, go explore this, what, what do you try to find to, to find those characters, find that arc, find the, the building blocks of what will become a story? I'm looking for a beginning, a middle, and an end, and I'm looking for uh, conflict. <laughs> I'm looking for. Um, uh, conflict and resolution, and I'm looking for a compelling character. I mean, th- this is not this is not rocket science. These are the these are the, the building blocks uh-huh. of, of of stories. Whether you whether it's a novel or a, a piece of nonfiction narrative in a newspaper, or a magazine, or book length, or whatever. Um, so, one of the big ways I look for stories and and learn to look for stories um, at the St. Pete Times was to read the St. Pete Times um, and read other things too as well uh, throughout the metro area and throughout the state of Florida, but to read articles, newspaper articles, um, because most newspaper articles are you know, the beginning <laughs> of a story or the end of a story. Sometimes it's the middle of the story, but you're not reading the whole story. And so um, what I was looking for in those cases was a piece, a piece that I can use to then go report the rest, if that makes sense, uh, and then uh, report it out, have it front to back, and then uh, structure it in a, in a way uh, in which it is much more story as opposed to an article. That brings us well to, to the first story I wanted to mention, which wasn't written for Tampa Bay Times, but but for Outside Magazine, and uh, it encapsulates a lot of those things you're talking about: beginning, middle, end, conflict, character. Except, you know, the character uh, is an animal; it's a, a bighorn sheep, and uh, the the conflict is, is between nature and and human. And it's really, I, I thought, you know, an incredible allegory. Mm-hmm. W- would you mind reading a selection of that first, and then we get into how that story came to you and and how you filled it out? Sure. So I'll read, and then we can talk more about Bam Bam, uh, the mm-hmm. bighorn sheep in Wyoming. Meanwhile, on YouTube, people kept clicking, kept watching. Thousands became tens of thousands. Tens of thousands became hundreds of thousands. Viewers thought it was funny. The fact that this bighorn sheep was doing something they had never seen a bighorn sheep do should have been a signal that something wasn't right, an indicator. But they didn't know what they were watching. They didn't know that Bam Bam was behaving the way he had to behave that he was obligated by his evolutionary code to vie for dominance. The way he did when he was a weak old lamb, drinking his mother's milk, watching for shadows of circling eagles, butting his brothers with the nascent nubs on the top of his head. Only now he was alone. There were no other rams. There were no other sheep. So he pushed on Mark James' Toyota 4Runner. He butted at it. He had it on the run. He proudly showed his horns. Perfect. So how did that story come to you? And one reason that section jumped out to me is because we're, you know, roughly in, in the middle of the story here. And I mean, the details jump out. I imagine you had to do a lot of learning about what it's like for a young lamb to, to look up at, at the shadows of circling eagles. And huh. did, did you see the YouTube video first? This, this YouTube video of this sheep uh, bumping into this Toyota 4Runner and everything exploded from there? Or, or what was the genesis? 
The genesis was that I read, I suppose you'd call it an obituary of Bam Bam the Bighorn Sheep in a newspaper in Wyoming. And I'm not even sure how that came across my field of (laughs) view. I think it was on Twitter. uh, because somebody had flagged it, uh, I, I'm blanking on who in my Twitter feed would have been reading that paper in Wyoming, but it was unusual enough, you know. It was sort of um, why is there even an obit of a of a bighorn sheep in right. Wyoming? But it, it, it that's just it. It was an obit. It was the <laughs> end of his story, and it made mm-hmm. me. It made there were enough things mentioned in the obit that made me so curious to know how how we got to that point, you know? And so um, I, I pitched that to, um, to outside. Um, I had heard from an editor there, uh, the top editor there, um, Chris, and he had reached out to me a little bit before that saying, hey, if you ever have um, any ideas that you think would work for us, um, please pitch me. And so um, there was some serendipity involved, I think, um, because I had just heard from Chris, and here was this obit for a bighorn sheep in Wyoming, and it made me think, well, this 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 is an interesting piece, and if if it should run anywhere um, outside, would be a great place for it, and um, you know, was grateful to have uh, Chris Greenlight that and um, send me out to Wyoming for. I mean, I was out in Wyoming for like a week and a half working on this yeah. story, and wow. um, and then it ran, you know, many many months later, um, but it was. It was it was an interesting piece to work on for sure. Was that a theme that you were hoping you know to find something to, to explore, or uh, was it really just kind of the oddity of that story, and then getting into this whole intersection of you know humanity and wilderness and uh, preserving nature while allowing uh, tourists to to enjoy it? Yeah, I, I suppose it was just the initial oddity that was um, that grabbed me at first, but I also had. I think partly because I was living and working in Florida, I had learned to um, see news of the bizarre and try to see past the bizarre and look for the universal and look huh. for the the real. And uh, you know, this would pop up a lot. You know, at that time. It's still active, but at that time, the Florida man uh, mm-hmm. meme was was had really taken off, and so everybody liked to sort of laugh about quote unquote Florida man and what sorts of hijinks had Florida man, this Florida man, that Florida man gotten into now, and you know, ninety percent of those stories, I would read them and say, "Goodness gracious, that's that's an that's an actual person who yeah. had gotten." him or herself into um into a scrape that was sort of sucked into the you know bizarro florida or news of the bizarre factory but actually they're all compelling pieces of much larger much more important stories and more broadly if this doesn't sound too high-minded you know part of universal human condition and so um what difference does it make if it's a person or if it's a bighorn sheep in wyoming uh Uh you can you can sort of um you know get into that into a much larger place a much larger uh playground for for a you know, much much broader, more universally compelling story. If you just sort of respond to the that initial like pinprick of the bizarre. Yeah, um, and, and this is a story. And you have several other either where you're writing about someone who's passed away, 
or more recently writing about President Trump, where you don't have access to to the main character. So how do you go about, you know, fleshing out that story? Uh, And as you're writing it, keeping, because this is the the first line of the story I I will read uh, quickly. A sheep was dead, a bighorn sheep. So you don't, I mean, you don't, you don't hide the ending from anybody. So how do you think about kind of writing the, the, the middle of this story without having the suspense factor, I suppose? Well, the suspense factor is not is Bam Bam dead? Bam Bam's dead. I mean, that's the reason I'm there. The the, uh-huh. the suspense is why is he dead and mm-hmm. who and who killed him? Mm-hmm. And I suppose the answer, and it's been a while since I've read that story, but I suppose the answer in the most general sense is we killed him. Right. And so how did we kill him? Uh, and what does that say about us and our relationship with, um, with our surroundings and with, you know, quote unquote nature. And that's a super story. That's never not a story. Right. <laughs> and so, um, you know, that, uh, and, um, you know, the first, the first sentence, that first sentence almost begs the question, mm-hmm. okay, why? And okay, why should I care? And so then you're in, I hope. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. And and you are right. The The final line of that story is, is an autopsy of, uh, in a sense that I, I won't read, but uh, hopefully everybody here who, who's listening will, will get to it and, and can realize exactly what uh, caused Bam Bam's end there. I mean, you know, obviously you can't talk to Bam Bam. I mean, even if Bam Bam had been alive, I wouldn't right. have been able to interview Bam Bam. So, you, so you're required to report in in a way that, you know, gosh, I never looked at it this way, but maybe, maybe writing that story about Bam Bam the Bighorn Sheep was was in some sense good preparation for writing about politics and writing about the current <laughs> president because, you know, not not always. I mean, sometimes I. I do a profile that that involves access to the principal, so to speak. But yeah. it's not infrequent that I don't have access yeah. uh, to the principal and certainly to the to the president um, almost all the time. Yeah. And so you're forced to report around uh, the person uh, or the bighorn sheep in the case of that story. And in some ways, that is quite. I find it to be quite liberating. I mean, you don't have to sort of play the access game. You don't have to mm-hmm. think about, well, how now that I have this access, how do I need to show it or how best to use it? I can just I can just follow the story as I report it and um uh and and you're almost you're you're forced to work a little bit harder, which I think sometimes um leads to more surprising, more interesting results. I mean, for instance, with that Bam Bam story, I mean, some of those details come from talking to scientists and park rangers and whatnot who actually, you know, quote unquote, knew Bam Bam. But some of them also come from, you know, reading obscure, long ago published books about, you know, the evolutionary behaviors of of bighorn sheep. (laughs) And, you know, you can you sort of responsibly write some of those sentences in that story because, well, Bam Bam did this as a lamb, as a baby bighorn sheep, because that's just what baby bighorn sheeps do, Mm -hmm. you know? And um, it just forces you, or at least it forced me to kind of tease out uh, the most salient most compelling details um of of the the you know the life of of bam bam and of any bighorn sheep from from front to back i mean when you're writing about death period uh, whether it's an animal or human uh, it, it 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 creates a situation where you have the ending and then the challenge becomes 
reporting back to the beginning or as close as you can, reporting back to, to, to birth, uh, a life uh, in full. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's perfect because the next story I wanted to talk to you about, the right thing to do versus the state of Florida opens similarly. Uh, in this case, the Tallahassee medical examiner unzipped the body bag. Here was an 18-year-old muscular black male. Uh, and this is a story about Devon Darling, who was a Florida State player who passed away during during a training. And, and I highlighted, if you don't mind, that uh, kind of key section. In some ways, the climax or the, the presupposition, I suppose, of, of the action there. Now in the Moore Athletic Center in the second floor gym, with a banner on the wall calling Florida State football a dynasty, coaches told Devon and the rest of the players in his group to get down in the ground, fronts to the mats, roll to the right, roll to the left, pop back up, move your feet, move your feet, move your feet, back down in the ground, fronts to the mats, roll to the right, roll to the left, over and over and over. And Devon was down on the ground and he couldn't stand back up. He told his teammates his chest hurt. He told his teammates he couldn't see. The coaches told him to do it again. He hadn't done it right. They told him to do it again with his group. He hadn't done it right. They told him to do it again on his own. He hadn't done it right. And his eyes were closed and he was out there all alone. The last player to finish his teammates cheering for him, clapping for him, pushing him, encouraging him like they had done before, like they had done for him and for others. You got to go four quarters. One of them yelled, finished finally. And Devon staggered off the mats. He crumpled to his knees near a wall against which he rested his head. The top trainer hurried over. No response. Shallow breathing. The trainer checked his pulse. He had a pulse. Let's move to the training room, the trainer said. That story's in SB Nation. How did that one come to be? And and how did you decide to take it where you did, where the, the ultimate action is, is somewhat, you know, in the courts and the legislature about uh, Darling's family trying to get some level of retribution or, or apology from Florida State? That story um, helpfully just fell into my lap. Glenn Stout uh, emailed or called, or contacted me, and, and said, "You know, here's this, here's this, this thing that happened um, at Florida State, and it's sort of ever active um, within governmental quarters in Tallahassee. And is this something you'd like to try to pursue?" And I said, yes, I had been looking for a way to, to work with Glenn and to, you know, get involved with SB Nation long form at that point. And so that story actually um, was certainly in its own way, exceptionally difficult to report, but, mm-hmm. but um, e- easier uh, in another way than Bam Bam was to report because the, the, the court records were the court records, right? I mean, yeah. I, I, I made the records requests and they were incredibly detailed um because of the you know because of the importance of 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 his death and uh, and then i called his mother and called his twin brother uh they both lived in the houston area so i reported that the the reporting trip for that piece uh for that freelance piece was much quicker than the bam bam wyoming trip i mean i've left work uh, at the end of the work week on Friday evening uh, mm-hmm. in St. Pete, got on an airplane, went to Houston, um, spent Saturday and part of Sunday there, and then uh, flew home. And uh, when I was out in Houston, spent time with um, his twin brother and spent time with his mother and uh, went to his grave. And then after that, it was it was it was phone calls and it was um, 
swimming in those records and uh, taking what was what was necessary from those records and um, and and of course as with every story thinking about um, the most uh, appropriate and compelling structure I think now maybe is the best point of any to describe to explain to me how you end up moving from you know writing these stories and, and, and working at Tampa Bay Times to, to moving to politics and Politico so I had been at the Times for going on a decade and um, had started to feel like my future there um, or the future there was a little bit fuzzier. Uh, you know, I wasn't worried about not being able to keep trying to do really good work. I wasn't worried about losing my chair, but... One of the appeals of working at the St. Pete Times was that it was, because of Pointer and because of its ownership structure, sort of immune for a while from the Mm -hmm. market forces within journalism and within regional newspapers. And that started to become or to feel less true. And so um, I wasn't itching or agitating to leave, but I was certainly more open to the possibility than I had been before. And around that time in late 2014, when I was in that kind of headspace, um, a then um, Politico staffer emailed a colleague at uh, St. Pete asking if there were people in St. Pete who would be interested in talking to Politico to do sort of this kind of work or more of this kind of work than Politico at that time was known for, I guess. And I said, somehow that message got to me and I said, uh, sure, why not? Uh, Why not have a conversation? I had never really anticipated um, making politics my primary arena. I had never anticipated working for Politico, partly just because, you know, Politico didn't exist when I got to the St. Pete Times. Um, Anyway, um, I had some phone conversations with some people at Politico. Those led to um, a trip up to Politico to talk some more, uh, which led, looking back, in fairly short order to uh, to an offer and 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 to me deciding that that's what I wanted to do and what would what would be best for my family as well. you know, one thing, as I mentioned before, that made this uh, transition um, easier than it would have been, and it was not easy, but uh, easier than it would have been, was that, you know, oddly, um, Politico at the same time, at first, I didn't know this, but simultaneously was talking to Bill about moving there as, as, as the enterprise editor at Politico. And so when I said to Bill just in the interest of disclosure, uh, that I was in the course of having conversations with Politico, he, he looked at me funny and uh, came over to my desk in St. Pete and said, let's go for a walk. And we uh, we went for a walk and, and he said, uh, I too am talking to Politico. And so um, thereafter, it became this kind of, uh, you know, wow. ta- tag team um, situation where I certainly, I wasn't I was interested in Politico, period, but I mm-hmm. was interested in particular because uh, Bill was interested in Politico and vice versa. And so, um, you know, it, it created a couple uh, strange weeks of, of talking to Politico, talking to Bill, uh, um, and trying to make a decision, you know, individually, but collectively, too, on uh, whether this was, this was what we wanted to do at that time. 
Absolutely. And so it seems like the the magazine writer style, as much as they're more than the politics beat, was what drew you there? Is that is that fair to say? Um, it's fair to say, but I, I wouldn't say politics didn't interest me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I had written some profiles, including some quite long profiles of some politicians in Florida. It certainly wasn't a primary piece of my position, but it, it, mm-hmm. I wasn't totally foreign to the idea um, and it wasn't uninteresting to me um, the way Politico framed the the position to me though was not so much politics you know hmm. uh, but profiles um, uh-huh. you know we want you to profile presidential candidates that's sort of how they pitch it at that time yeah. and Washington works in in cycles and you know two-year and four-year cycles of course and so they were thinking you know they want me to profile 2016 candidates and this was this was two years ahead of the election which i thought was a long time ahead of election but i mean little did i know you know we were already in the thick of things but um but that's that's how they sort of pitch it to me and so that's how i looked at it an opportunity to uh, to to just write profiles, and these profiles obviously would happen to be about would be about politicians um, rather than other kinds of profiles, but profiles nonetheless, which which was a form that I really enjoyed and wanted to get better mm-hmm. at. And so, um, you know, Politico and um, and the challenge and the allure of upping the competitive juices in a place like Washington um, all kind of added up to um, to me making the decision to to make that to make that jump do you remember what your first profile there was I went back to Florida I, I profiled it was a Jeb Bush piece on um, the Terry Shivo case uh-huh. uh, if, if, if if you recall the the woman yeah. who was um, uh, in uh, some state of of brain dead, and I say some state because that was just the just the the crux of the matter, right? right? But yeah. um, uh, I, I went down and spent some time with her ex husband Michael Shivo, and re explored, you know, through the lens of his pending at that time 2016 candidacy that case, and um, you know, wrote a a profile of Jeb Bush in which I made the argument and, and and hopefully supported the argument that this was the, as I put it in the piece, the Jebest thing Jeb has ever done. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and then, and then from there sort of off, off to the races and who knew where we were, where we were, uh, where we were headed. Absolutely. So, so when you took the job or, or shortly thereafter, did you expect to be on the Jeb Bush beat for, for five to eight years to come? Um, I'm not sure what I expected, but I certainly didn't expect what ultimately transpired, uh, nor did anybody. I will say this, in my conversations with editors at Politico in the interview process, um, you know, Jeb Bush came up a lot. Hillary Clinton came up a lot. Uh, Donald Trump came up none. And so um, I, I went thinking I would spend a lot of time learning about Jeb Bush, which I did. I was mm-hmm. thinking I would spend no shortage of time learning about people like Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, um, definitely Hillary Clinton. Uh, you know, I think Martin O'Malley was already in the mix at that time. I, th- yeah. I think Bernie Sanders sort of came out of left field as well. But, um, you know, I there were a couple names um, on the short list, but obviously we knew there was going to be a giant field, um, especially on the Republican side. And so it was just, it was just, you know, I felt like I was um, 
sprinting and really just trying to keep my head above water and, um, and keep going and, um, uh, trying to stay sane for, you know, a year plus uh, yeah. before I felt like I was in some sort of position where I, um, where I had some critical mass of, of perspective and knowledge and sources. And, and starting there with, with, with Jeb, did you ever get, you know, the, the sense of, of the thud that he was going to land with once, once the voting started, was that something that surprised you? Um, let me think back to that moment. I, I don't know that it was, uh, so surprising after a very brief period of time because it was pretty clear. And one mm-hmm. of, one of the, one of, one of, one of the things that Politico does much more consciously than certainly the St. Pete Times did, uh, before I left is, you know, gauge interest in, in yeah. people and subject matters just, uh, through, clicks and through mm-hmm. um engagement time and uh it was fairly clear fairly quickly that people were more interested in other people i was writing about than jeb bush and i feel like my first my first handful of of pieces were i feel like the majority of them were about jeb bush and then thereafter i i kind of just i kind of just stopped i moved uh-huh. to other people and and a few months later, moved to Trump and haven't left yeah. left since. <laughs> Do you remember your your first uh, story on, on then candidate Trump? I believe it was actually. I, I hesitate to even call it a story, although it's somewhat story like. It, uh-huh. it was. It was a what I took to calling a lista profile, um, uh, which is which is a combination of a listicle and a and a profile, and it, it was uh, 199 things that um, Donald Trump has said. And I organized those 199 things in a in a certain purposeful way to try to quote unquote profile him. So I, a little bit of an odd way to start writing about him, but um, I, I'm pretty sure it was that, or it might have been a pretty quick one about why why Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton had gone to his his third wedding um, yeah. at Mar-a-Lago. Those were the first two things I, I ever wrote about Donald Trump. Uh-huh. And and when did you, you know, I know you've, you've spent a lot of time reading as much as you can in terms of, you know, past books about him and, and all that. When did, when did that research start into some of his past connections? What was that deep dive uh, like for you? It started slowly and in fits and starts in the summer of 2015, um, you know, pretty quickly after he announced that June. But I, I'd say it didn't really, I didn't really turn my focus to him in earnest and almost at the expense of all other things, but Hillary Clinton until I got back from a brief break around Christmas 2015. And I said to Bill, um, you know, until proven otherwise, he's going to be the Republican nominee. And so why are we, why are we devoting resources and time, uh, finite and valuable things to, um, to too much Ted Cruz and too much Marco Rubio, um, who were the other two people I was sort of focusing on at the time. Why don't we sort of shift a little bit more um, meaningfully, a little bit harder to Trump? And that started really in earnest January of 2016. Um, And that's when I more methodically, more systematically started trying to plow my way through 
mm-hmm. the you know the Trump bookshelf, both books mm-hmm. about him, starting in the '80s and early '90s, and uh, some of which are very um, rigorously reported um, in a totally different context, but very helpful and very useful. And mm-hmm. books that that you know I sort of wish more people uh, would have read by now. But um, <laughs> and then also books, of course, you know that are you know by him. I mean, of course, they're not by him, but um, yeah. books with his name. Uh, on the front mm-hmm. um, as as the author uh, sort of you know started in a very um, purposeful way moving from the art of the deal through the through the years and uh, reading all the profiles that have been written about him uh, dipping back into newspaper archives into magazine archives just c- compiling um, Trump stuff and uh, didn't stop doing that until well i haven't stopped doing that but but i (laughs) didn't i didn't i i did there was a moment in time i will admit that in the late summer and early fall of 2016 where i definitely shifted some attention away from trump to to uh hillary clinton because frankly i thought she was going to be president and um as did everybody right or most everybody and it just felt like okay i've done i've done my my trump work and now it's it's sort of more important to use um my time uh to uh, be more focused about laying groundwork uh for the person who is going right. to be president with, with a long history of her own to, to with, read about with, too. which i had which i had tried to um delve into as well but not to the extent that i did mm-hmm. with trump partly because that had already been done by so many great right. great people for so long on on the hillary clinton front i mean trump as strange as it may sound um was much more offered much more unexplored territory, um, especially through the political context, you know, that what had been written about him was written about him when he was a um, innocuous entertainer, a um, sort of a a, a cartoon character, real estate tycoon that everybody sort of, um, you know, watched in New York, but, um, but understood to be a certain thing. And, and, and that thing was that he didn't, totally matter until he all of a sudden did matter a lot. And so part of the Trump work um, has been, and certainly was in 2016, in the first half of 2016, was to kind of... I mean, I really did think of it as this effort to like recast, reframe all these things that were already out there that had already been written um, through a suddenly, you know, much more consequential context yeah. Uh, much more important lens and obviously here we are today and that historical framework lens is that something that you, you've had an interest in, in in looking at somebody that way for a while or was that more a matter of being a relative neophyte in washington that being your your angle in both i'm certainly very interested in history probably more interested in history than than um you know not all journalists but i'd say many journalists uh you know um it's just an interest of mine i was a history major in college um but also, to your point and to your question, I was desperate to find a way um, when I got to Washington, I mean, still to some extent, but certainly when I first got there, to find a way to um, carve out 
any you know any semblance of a of a of a niche that was my own uh, sort of a, a way to write stories that were that were you know, my kind of stories <laughs> that you know condition readers to know sort of oh this is the kind of story he's interested in or this is what he does that that other people or not as many other people do and so I certainly didn't bring a you know a phone. F- Filled with contacts, um, and I didn't bring even a um, long, you know, personal study of politics. I mean, I was never, I was more of a, you know, sports fan growing up than a politics (laughs) watcher. And I I wasn't like a politics um, junkie, even as, as an adult and as a reporter in Florida, any more than just being you know, above average aware of, of uh, local and state politics because I read the newspaper, you know? And so I had to find some way to, um, to do work, <laughs> to do work that was different uh, or that, that was in any way different. And that was, that was one way I chose to do it, to explore uh, candidates, um, pasts and histories and um, use what I learned to, um, you know, illustrate, uh, some uh, important piece of their present and of their candidacies, and I still do that. I mean, it's a, I think it's a thing that that um, you know isn't done uh, as much as it should be uh, in in Washington. And I say that not because I think that, but because um, a lot of people think that. And so uh, I'm glad I was I've been able to you know sort of make that a piece of what I do for Politico. So it's been pretty much two years now since you've taken this historical look. I'm curious what you've discovered in terms of the the value or interest in taking that look back at, at the past and, and pulling out certain events that, that might be relevant to today I mean I just think so much of so much reporting a lot of it is so good and reporting that I could never do or certainly can't do now um, is is um, almost necessarily present centric. I mean, it's, it's, it's news, right? And so what's going on today is hugely important, but I think what sometimes gets lost in the mix is, um, the, the context that you can explore more deeply by, um, reporting back. And it's funny, it was just what popped into my head was, you know, reporting back to, um, you know, Bam Bam as a baby reporting back to, you know, the birth of, um, you know, the woman I wrote about in the, in the, in, in Florida, Catherine Norris, mm-hmm. who disappeared inside her own home and wasn't found for, you know, the better part of a year and a half, right. um, which is sort of a story about this woman, but also about like mental illness and isolation. And, and you know, the job there was to report, you know, from her death back to birth. And, it's not totally dissimilar to how I try to approach uh, Trump or any other candidate. You know, how, how how far back can I go to to learn things that would help me and therefore help my readers understand what makes this person tick now, now that we're paying attention to this person in, in this new way. So what do your notes look like? I mean, do you have, do you have a, a folder of, of notes on all the, I'm just kind of, kind of curious, the logistics of maintaining a 30-year history of Trump and, and having it at the ready when current events call for, you know, talk about his connection to women or, or whatever it may be. Shoot, if I had known that this is where we where we were heading, I would have <laughs> yeah. been much more organized about this. Um, you know, it is some combination of digital files, um, uh-huh. you know, on, uh, on, 
discs and, and jump drives, um, wow. but it is also almost to a fault and in kind of a fuddy-duddy uh, old-fashioned way, it is um, literal physical shelves and shelves of Trump books and Trump adjacent books, books about, you know, uh, New York City politics, books about, um, you know, the history of conservative politics, uh, you know, machine politics in New York, um, uh, the mob, Atlantic City, gambling, um, you know, that are all like sort of marked up with highlighters and red pens and, um, you know, post-it notes labeled uh, various things. And I mean, to to, to, to be honest, uh, to uh, too great an extent, um, I am forced to kind of rely on my imperfect like mental encyclopedia of yeah. Trump rather than I'm going to you know hit control uh, F and uh, look for all the things that relate to X, Y, or Z. It's it's like. Okay, I, I know that in, in the following seven books, uh, we explore this kind of thing in roughly this area. And then I just, you know, depending on what kind of deadline I'm, I'm on, I, I, I go hunting and find what I need. Do you feel like, is there so far a, a story that you feel like you got closest to, to understanding Trump through that lens of your, your favorite one where you feel like you, you maybe uh, got to understand him a little bit better as we're all trying to do here? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, never ending, um, it's a never ending pursuit. Um, I feel like I probably, um, understand him in a more educated way than, than most people at this point, but I, there's lots, lots to still do and lots to still explore. Um, you know, he is say what you want about the 45th president of the United States, but he is not uninteresting. And the thing that I actually like about, um, a lot about writing about Trump and sort of constantly profiling him in this way is that it is an entry point. He is an entry point to so many things. I mean, I feel like I, I feel like I've learned so much about so much about the last 50, 60, 70 years uh, through the lens of Trump, if that doesn't sound too odd. I mean, he, he, um, he sort of touches, um, so many important veins of the American story uh, over the course of his, you know, 71 years. And, um, you know, I've, I've actually quite enjoyed uh, being forced to learn more about not only, not only the, like the political environments that helped create him, but the social environments, the, you know, obviously the media centric environments. I mean, all these things that, that, um, that have helped create him and that he's, uh, he's used, um, to his advantage to get to where he's gotten. Um, you know, it is, it's, it's, I'm sure this class exists somewhere, but it, it, it <laughs> and if it doesn't, it should, but there, there, uh -huh. you know, there is a, there is a massive like Trump America seminar, uh, that, that needs to be, uh, that needs to be administered at some prestigious institution of higher education. I believe this was a cover story, right? Um, in, in September, the loneliest president. Uh, and, and it's, it's fascinating because like you mentioned, not having access, it opens with, you know, quotes from an email is kind of well, your, your jumping off point. And, yeah. um, th those are, those are used in this passage, which, which ends the first section, I believe of that story. There's been so much focus, understandably and unavoidably, on the various parts of Trump's personality that have helped define his presidency to this point. 
They are frequently cited as obstacles to his and his administration's success, his driving belligerence, his fleeting attention span, his sweet tooth for chaos, but in the end, his well-established unwillingness or inability to make and maintain relationships that matter might be the most politically debilitating, or it might not be. This elemental character trait seen by many as such a liability hasn't stopped him yet. He is, after all, the most powerful person in the world. Good. I don't want them. Those quotes from that email you referenced, and I write, he means it. So how, how did that story come about? And whether you're writing about that or his relationship with his mother, uh, kind of the, these answering a question, how do you go about just writing that story where the beginning, middle, and end is, is maybe not as important as kind of getting to what he is right now? Yeah, so one of the ways I try to suss out story ideas on, you know, the Trump beat on my version of the Trump beat is, is to, you know, gauge what is going on right now, what he's doing right now, what he's not doing right now, what people seem to be interested in, and then help, um, help (laughs) the citizenry, help Politico's readers and the populace at large, I suppose, um, uh, understand it a little bit more, answer those questions. And, this story uh, I did at a moment in time where it seemed, you know, particularly relevant. This this uh, this isolation. Uh, he, he more and more he was being described as as you know isolated in the White House, isolated from Congress, isolated from his own certain members of his own cabinet and staff. And to that, because because of you know, my professional existence over the last two plus years, I thought to myself, well, this is not actually that unusual. It's it's of a piece. It's part of his lifelong patterns of, of behavior, which are quite, quite consistent. You know, he's sort of this, this hallmark of unpredictability is just a fallacy. He's, he's, he's very predictable in many, many ways. And and so I mentioned that to to Bill, to my editor, and and we, as as often happens, we just sort of started batting that around back and forth, and um, having you know a loose conversation about this idea. And at some point, if I recall, I think it was um, it was it was Bill, or maybe maybe even another editor jumped in and said, "So you know, he's he's the loneliest president," <laughs> and. I said, yeah, yes, that's that's the headline, and uh, I can I can write to that headline, um, and and so um, it was another case, um, as are many of these Trump profiles, these Trump pieces. It was a case of of you know going back to the library and um, and going back to you know my phone now is is you know more and more um, every day really more and more filled with people who've known. Trump over time, over the last 50 years, who can, 50 plus in some cases, who can help me, um, who can help me sort through my thoughts. Yeah, I I just, and a lot of my interviews with these people, in addition to just sort of plucking things from the public record and from, from my, my book reading and whatnot, and from his books, is, is, Making these calls to these people who you know who come to mind as 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 people who could help me think about Trump in this respect, you know, who can help me think about Trump uh, being isolated and over the course of his life, starting from the get go, right, and um, and just making calls and saying, here's what I'm thinking, you know, can you help me think through this, and um, and then just 
laying that out both thematically um, when it comes to structure, but also um, chronologically. You know, uh, you can always uh, think, uh, you can always structure these pieces, or almost always structure these pieces, um, with that in mind. You know, how far back can I go to make a reported point that would support this theory of the case? <laughs> yeah. And so I think with that piece about the loneliest president, uh, you know, I um, talked to um, at least back to New York Military Academy where he went starting in the eighth grade, uh, talked to people who went to Fordham with him, talked to people who went to Penn with him. Uh, and then, of course, um, thereafter. And then you're just then you're just sort of. Uh, making the case um, on a chronological um, on a chronological spectrum. You mentioned who you're writing for, so I want I want to pick that out a little bit too, if you don't mind. Yeah. Working at, at Politico, you know, a, an insidery magazine in a lot of sense, but writing on the internet about Trump, which is the biggest story in the world and has been for 18 months now. Um, and and the story, I think you could tell me if I'm wrong, that probably got the most pickup was uh, the the Johnstown story. Mm. Um, so, so when you're writing a story like that, what, what are you thinking about as your audience for, for all the people that could end up coming to the story on the internet? Yeah, it's a good and interesting question in particular uh, with respect to Politico, because I think Politico's primary audience, as you, I think, sort of alluded to, is quote-unquote influencers. And you're writing for a very sophisticated, very savvy, very connected audience, which, which, which requires, which which makes it a requirement for somebody like me to to get to a certain level or try to get to a certain level of sophistication as well. I mean, I, I need to hit a bar, a high enough bar to where this would be interesting or insightful or, or, um, or new information for those people um, who are a kind of a rarefied audience. But yeah. that's not, to me, and I think for Politico magazine and even Politico writ large, it's not the only audience, right? I mean, it, it, that is a large chunk of the desired readership. Mm -hmm. But I also want it to be valuable and interesting to anybody, to anybody, um, to anybody who's interested in any of this, and, and I think you know, Trump to some extent is interesting, or should be interesting, to <laughs> to, to every single person alive, uh, yeah. in not only in this country but on the planet Earth. And so, um, that's you know, it sounds strange, but that's who I'm at least trying to write for. I want yeah. the biggest, broadest possible audience, and I want there to be something for both the you know Beltway insiders and for the precise opposite of Beltway insiders. Um, you mentioned the Johnstown piece, this last Johnstown piece, which you know did um, create quite a bit of uh, you know attention and traffic and discussion because of some of what was in there. But uh, I think yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying to. I'm just thinking out loud here. But yeah, you sure. know, the audience for that story, mm -hmm. in some sense, is even more a beltway audience in my head than than um than profiles of trump where i want where i want people who aren't beltway insiders reading that too of course but you know one of the like the base the basic public service uh, public service facets that i 
try to provide with stories that have sort of at this point like derisively labeled as Trump country stories is to is to get on a dang plane and go talk to people who aren't in Washington and uh, and people who helped make him president not the only people who made him president but some people who definitely in this most material most immediate way made him president and listen to them and report back uh, to the core Washington or capitals of consequence Mm -hmm. quote-unquote centric portion of Politico's audience because that is something that I think they are trying to explain trying to understand Mm -hmm. Um, they all have their own reasons for trying to understand that and trying to explain that but it's something that is not only interesting to them but is extremely important to I think just the body politic in our democracy not to get too like sort of um, you know <laughs> I mind yeah it. but I, it, 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 it matters and, and uh, so when I go to a place like Johnstown or to Pepin County Wisconsin or to Illinois or Indiana or Ohio or any place sort of you know like that um, I have that in mind I have I, I want to but I don't want to just it's I don't I, I don't want it to just be man on the street I don't want to just sort of open my notebook or open my right, audio the most salacious whatever yeah, right. I want to say I want to say something that is and I want to report out to be you know in the right uh, to say something that um, would be useful and would be interesting and would matter to not only people all over America, but people inside the beltway who need to know this stuff too. And who need to be reminded to keep thinking about this and keep mm-hmm. thinking about it with a, you know, with a um, uh, perhaps more uh, open-minded and empathetic uh, bent. Yeah. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you moved back from DC to North Carolina, which is uh, where I'm from as well. But I, divided state if not a, a, a trump state but is that is that informed part of that uh education that you're looking to bring of, of, of that context is, i mean do you feel like your your everyday life there informs some of these stories yeah i mean i think unconsciously organically it can't help but uh inform that but i, I and you're right i mean i lived in washington i lived in arlington for a year and a half and then uh ever since i haven't lived there i'm in washington a good bit and um in and out but i do think I have a slightly different view of Washington or a slightly different view of, of a lot of things because I don't live there. I mean, it is a very uh, exciting but sort of singular and peculiar place. And um, I think it's certainly not unhelpful to live somewhere else. And I think that's one reason Politico was okay with it, with me living where I live in North Carolina and still doing what I do. Um, but I would also say that beyond even my current living arrangement, I came to Washington with a with a different uh, past, both as a person and as a professional, because I had worked in New York State in a more mm-hmm. exurban and even rural um, a, a reporting territory. Um, you know, my initial few years at the St. Pete Times were you know knocking on doors of trailers in you know rural Florida. After that, uh, you know, crisscrossing um, the state of Florida, which is you know, a large varied state. It's not all, it's not all beaches and, uh, and move downs, you know, it, it has very, very, very Southern rural, um, uh, areas. I mean, that's most of the state from a, from a land standpoint. And so 
I guess what I'm saying is we're all a product of, of kind of our path to the current moment. And my path is a little bit different, I think, than um, a good number of people who do such good work at Politico. They show up in Washington because um, it's their interest and, uh, you know, climb the ranks in Washington, but they live in, in or around Washington. And uh, my path to Washington and to Politico was through, you know, was through um, small areas and, uh, you know, rural areas in New York State and in Florida. And um, so I just, I, I, I don't know, I haven't really thought about this explicitly, but I think it, it can't hurt when I, when I, you know, go out to quote unquote, Trump country, um, which is to say, like most of the country, and uh, and talk to people who aren't politicians. Uh, I mean that mm-hmm. that is that is um, that is certainly as comfortable for me as reporting on Capitol Hill, and probably more comfortable for me than reporting yeah. on Capitol Hill. Absolutely. And, and, and on the, the topic of audience, I wanted to ask, understanding that a lot of people are going to see your stories via screenshots or, or clips, uh, you know, as much as we live in a, a soundbite culture, I feel like we live in a, a screenshot culture to the same degree. So how does that affect the way you construct a narrative? Uh, not too much. Uh, you know, this, the, you still have to serve the story. And uh, I'm, I'm probably more aware than I used to be, um, more aware at Politico of the reality that... Um, you know, this is going to be a quote or a phrase that might show up in a tweet or two or 2000. Um, but I try not to sort of let that influence too much how I would regularly think about structuring a story. I mean, the, the story is the story. Um, and so, I mean, for instance, with that Johnstown piece and, 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 and the, you know, the screen, the screenshot of, of the most provocative quote of the, of the number of provocative quotes, I think, <laughs> in that piece yeah. um, was at the very end of the story. And so that that's um, a little, I'd say, unusual for Politico. Usually there's a, there's a high temptation to mm-hmm. not hold back uh, something that is going to really sort of, um, you know, I mean, make news is not what that quote did, but but right. be a drive drive dr- conversation. Drive conversation, and um, then again, if 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 uh, if it's if it's good enough, um, <laughs> you know, people are going to get there. Um, yeah. And so I think, um, I mean, it's a, it's not a, it's, a, it's actually not a bad example of of you know holding holding fire a little bit and and trusting that the reader is going to get to the get to the bottom and and, and people are still going to talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and saying the story is the story. I want to go back uh, as we conclude here. You've been so kind with your time to to the speech uh, Tuesday night and, and 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 your notebook. Without giving away everything, what 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 kernels did jump out to you? I mean, what 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 are you looking to explore now as you continue to study the past and the present? Um, <laughs> honestly, not a whole heck of a lot jumped out at me from from last night from the from this day of the union. It was more or less what I was what I was expecting. Although, I mean, there are some pieces of that that might sort of, you know, with with future events, with things we don't even know, might become more and more relevant. Um, you know, I am right now. I, mean, I, I won't 
talk about it, but right now I'm, you know, sort of neck deep in a, in a couple mm-hmm. uh, Trump centric um, stories and projects, and um, and so uh, you know, this might be a fault of mine, but when I when I am so sort of um, focused on on a on a story I'm working on or on a project, I um, I, I have I have I have to force myself to kind of get out of that space and um, and scan not only a speech like the State of the Union, but scan the news of the day with um, you know other stories in in mind. It's it's something I it's something I continue to work on. How, how many stories at a time are you juggling? Um, you know, at various stages of the of of the story process. Um, you know, anywhere from blissfully just one to you know a handful um and there are always there are always um you know potential profiles of other politicians that are that that i'm trying to kind of set up even if it's just um phone calls and emails um and trying to identify the right moment or the right place to meet up with somebody um but you know, people on my radar, uh, people I will certainly write about months from now, but people I'm not, you know, um, focused in any, um, in any real way right now, but those who are on my radar and sort of on the docket for later. Excellent. Uh, well, thank you so much for taking time. And obviously this is going to drop on Sunday as, uh, you're, you're guest editing our newsletter, so People will be able to enjoy both, uh, potentially simultaneously if they so please. But uh, thanks again, Michael Cruz. Thanks, Jacob. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us for the Sunday Long Read Podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed that discussion as much as I did. Our next podcast will likely be with Don and Alex Belth to give you a little look ahead. And Belth just wrote that incredible oral history on Inside Sports for us. If you haven't checked that out, you can find it at sundaylongread.com slash originals. And I highly encourage you to do so before next week. Until then, this has been Jacob Feldman. Talk to you soon.